brother Lawrence. He's going to come up and testify. Amen, amen. Uh, again, my name is Lawrence. I'm a deacon here at Metro Praise International. And first and foremost, I just want to wish everyone here a happy Resurrection Sunday. You know, as I was reflecting on it uh, this morning, what a powerful event that was when Jesus Christ raised from the dead, right? He conquered the grave, emerged victorious. But as I was thinking about that and I was reflecting on it, God really put a verse on my heart. And it's Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 11, if any of you want to turn there. Again, chapter Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal, mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So everybody get this. The same spirit, the same resurrection power that raised Christ from, from the dead 2,000 years ago is now living and dwelling on the inside of each and every one of us. I'm telling you guys, God wants to use that power. God wants to use that spirit to resurrect this city, to resurrect your job, to resurrect your schools. That power is on the inside of us, and God wants that power to, to be broken out and released into this city, to heal the broken hearts, amen? So I want to encourage you, and I, and I want to challenge you. If you have the resurrection power and the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, let it be released and flow from within you. When you go to your jobs, when you talk to your boss, when you go to school, when you go to your colleges, let that resurrection power burst forth and bring life to those who are dying and to those who are hurting. Amen. And uh, right now, I'm just going to pray, um, pray us into the worship. So, God, we just thank you for today, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, that you resurrected God. God, death could not hold you down, Lord. And we just pray, God, that even as we gather here today, Lord God, you would release revival and awakening in the city, God, and that you would raise the city from the dead, Lord God, and that you would release your life and your power, God, the same power, God, that rose you from the dead, God. Would you raise the city from the dead, God? We invite your presence into this place, Lord God, and we ask you to have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, let's just release that power right now. That Holy Ghost power that's in you, just release it right now in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Return it back to the King. Hallelujah. Yeah. Come on, just lift up your hands all over this place. We serve a living Christ. Amen. We serve a living God. His grave is empty. And so is your grave. <laughs> Hallelujah. Lift up your hands. Praise the living King. Lift up your hands. Lift up your voice and worship the one who death could not hold down. this morning I've got a river in me water fountain never will not dry it's an open never be 
stirred up.
up a shout of praise in this place. Hallelujah. Yeah. We love you, Jesus. We exalt your mighty name, Lord. We exalt your mighty name, Jesus. Oh. How many worship a living Christ today? How many adore Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior and lover of your soul? Come on, praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him today. He is worth it. He is worthy to be praised. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. I'll sing this with you. There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your Our hearts long for 
saints wherever you're at right now just lift up your voice and tell him tell him what he means to you thank him for what he has done is he not a good savior come on just for the next 30 seconds just with your voice sing to him a new song come on sing to him a new song 
worship Him right now. Oh, let it come from your spirit. If you have to sing in tongues, then sing in tongues. If you have to sing with your mind, then sing with your mind. Whatever you do, just sing to Him.
you guys with hands lifted up all across this room we're celebrating the resurrection of our Lord we're celebrating the resurrection of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords there is no God like our God there is nobody that compares to him he stands alone and he created the universe he hung every star in its place he holds all the galaxies in his hands and he created you
Yeah, for those that don't know me, my name is Nancy Wyrostek. I'm one of the pastoral elders here. Today is not only Easter Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, it's also the first Sunday of the month where we take communion together as a church. And that is a practice that we um, have as a part of our service so that we can remember the Lord's resurrection, death, burial, or resurrection. So at this time, we're going to release the ushers to pass out the communion elements, and I'm going to preach the gospel to you this morning. How many of you guys want to hear about Jesus? Praise the Lord. If you could please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You could also look up at the screen, Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to walk away with three points from this passage of scripture. Number one, we were all born sinners and deserving of hell. That's what we deserved. We were not born good. We were not born righteous. We sinned against a holy God, and we were all born into sin. We were all born sinners, and we were destined for hell and destruction. Number two, we could have never saved ourselves. We were powerless to do so. We needed someone to take our place because the wrath of God was against mankind. Somebody say, but God. But God, number three, he sent Jesus to come and be our sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, a part of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Son, Jesus Christ, came to take our place. He came to be that sacrifice. He came to be the substitute so that God's wrath could be turned away from us and put on him on that cross. His blood covers us and washes us clean from our sin. He, was, he died, was buried, rose again so that we could have life. And for those of you in this room who are not right with God, you have never been born again. The Bible says that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If you know that is you in this place today, you do not have a relationship with God. You have not been born again. You have not allowed the blood of Jesus to wash you clean. You have not turned from your ways, looking to his ways to follow him. Today is a day of salvation, the Bible says. You're not promised tomorrow. So with all eyes closed all across this room, I want to pray. And I want you to search your hearts this morning. As we prepare to take communion, the Bible says, do not take communion in an unworthy manner. So you've heard the message of the gospel. The gospel means good news of Jesus. Cleanse your hearts before the Lord. Ask him to forgive you. Make a commitment to live for him all the days of your life. As I pray, I want you to search your hearts. And if you mean business, we're going to have prayer workers ready to pray with you during the fellowship time. God, I thank you for your presence in this place. Jesus, we thank you that you died so that we could live. You came and you took our place. You died on that cross. You died a gruesome death. You were beaten and bruised, and a crown of thorns was placed on your head. All for us, all of our sin, all of the sicknesses, and all of the sorrows of the world from beginning to end were laid upon you on that cross. And I pray that today people would run to your cross. 
that we would humble ourselves and repent of our sin, turn from our wicked ways, God, so that you could save us, so that you could heal us, so that you could set us free from the power of the devil. God, I pray that you would minister to every heart in this place that is not right with you. I pray that they would get right today, that they would get rid of the excuses, that they would receive your salvation, the blood that could cleanse them and make them white like snow. In the mighty name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Stand up to your feet with me this morning. We're going to prepare to take communion together as a family. I'm going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23. Does everybody have the grape juice and the wafer? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23 through 26, gives us a glimpse of um, what Jesus had the conversation with with his disciples before he left this earth, before it was time for him to be crucified. He told them to take communion. This act that we're going to do together, Jesus did with his disciples, and he promised that he would never do it again until we met with him in heaven. So we will see Jesus again, my friends. He is coming back for us. And that's why the urgency is so strong because he's coming back for a bride that is spotless and clean. He's coming back for a people that have fully surrendered their life to him. Let's read in verse 23. For I received, this is the Apostle Paul talking, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance remembrance of me. Let's pray for the wafer and let's partake together. God, we lift this up to you. We thank you for your body that was beaten and bruised for us. Oh God, we thank you that you took our place so that we could be saved. Go ahead and take the wafer. for you and just say thank you Jesus verse 25 in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes let's do that together saints this morning Jesus. We thank you for your blood. God, we will do this in remembrance of you. We are waiting for your return. We bless you this morning. We give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. Jesus, have your way in our hearts. We commit ourselves to you. Let's sing this one more time as we close out this time of worship. Let's lift up our voices. Let's lift up our hands. Jesus. All I see
Hallelujah, Lord. We worship you this morning. We thank you again for the cross in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Praise God. Praise the Lord. He is good. Please remain standing to your feet. Let's confess our confession of faith together. We confess this every week because this is our Christian worldview. This is what we believe. This is what we stand upon. This is what we will die by, okay? So look to your neighbor. Say, confession of faith. Believe it and speak it. Come on, on the count of three. Number one, two, three. I believe in one God and creator who is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father who so loved the world the Son who purchased my salvation in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit who makes me new and abides in me forever. I believe in the perfect Holy Bible that reveals God's purposes and plans for my life. I believe in the second coming of Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. I believe in the eternal reward of believers in Jesus and the eternal punishment for all unbelievers in Jesus. I believe in the United Church of Jesus Christ apostles and prophets, elders and deacons, in which the gates of hell shall not prevail. I believe in the salvation for all mankind. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and for the glory of God alone. Amen. Praise him. Take some time in fellowship. If you need prayer, our workers are right here. Go and shake somebody's hand.
who's excited to be at Metro Praise International this morning? Come on. We are celebrating the resurrection. Somebody say, he is risen. Amen. Welcome. If this is your first time here, thank you for joining us here at Metro Praise. We welcome you on behalf of the pastors and all the leaders. We would love to see you come on back and be a part of our family. Amen. Our services here are every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. So we have two services now for the whole family. On Fridays, we have Elevate every week at 7 p.m. for 11 to 18 years old. So if you know any teenagers, invite them, have them come on by. This month, we are kicking off our sermon series for April for our Easter season, and it's called Who is Jesus? So if you're visiting us only for Easter, we want to invite you back for the whole month. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, save, who is Jesus, Savior raised from the dead? Or just a buried man. And then you can see the, all the other sermon titles for the rest of the month. It's going to be very powerful. So keep inviting your friends and family for the month of April because we're excited about what God is going to do as we make his name known. We also have overflow parking now as we're making space to grow. Not only do we have the parking lot here that belongs to our storefront, 5405, but if you go behind the alley past our parking lot, we have an overflow parking lot that is... Um, accessible for us to use on Sundays. So if you can't find parking in the first parking lot, please feel free to go down the alley right next to our parking lot and that's an overflow. Somebody say overflow because we're blowing up. We're making space for more people to come, okay? Our vision here at MPI is very simple. It's loving God and loving people. Does that sound familiar? It's the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave to us. And so we strive here at MPI to live by that. We want to put God first in all that we do, love him with all of our heart, and love people. And our discipleship strategy is threefold. It's connect, mentor, and send. And our first step is connect. And we want to connect you to Jesus through our life groups. Somebody say life groups. And at this time, this week, we're kicking off our new quarter schedule for April, May, and June. And we have a video for you to watch. Please enjoy. in the Word of God, and also beautiful time of fellowship like this. Hi, my name is Ishmael. This is my wife, Robin Lopez, and we lead the Singles Life Group. We meet once a month at, our, at the church at 4 o'clock. Check out our Facebook for dates and come out for the Word, Fun, and Fellowship. This is the Righteously Redeemed Life Group for ages 11 to 18 years old, and we meet the first and third Wednesday of every month. We have evangelism, food, fellowship, and an awesome Word from God. Join us, first and third Wednesday. Yes, be here. How's it going, everybody? My name is Lawrence. I'm one of the leaders here at The Resistance. We meet up every first and third Tuesday around 6 p.m. It's for uh, ages 11 to 18. So we have a time of worship, Bible study, and just fellowship with the Word. Come on out and join us. Thanks. Hey, we're the Walkers. We want to invite you to our house every Friday at 7 p.m. for a Bible study. We uh, read the Word together, study it, pray, and uh, have a great time. We also have child care. Let us know if you need rides. Check us out on Facebook, MPI Walker Bible Study. Hey, everybody. I'm Julian. This is Rudy. We're leaders at Evangelism Life Group. We meet every Saturday at 5 p.m. Come and join us. Yeah, come on. We got a time of prayer. We hit the streets with the Word of God. People's lives get changed. Check out our Facebook page. Hi, I'm Pastor Lauren. This is Cynthia Rodon, and we're the leaders of the Single Moms Life Group. We meet every other Sunday at 5 p.m. 
We pray, we get into the word, come and be a part of what God is doing. Thank you. Hello everyone, this is Pastor Susie. I want to invite all of you to please bring your children out on Wednesdays every week from 6.30 to 8 o'clock for Rural Rangers and Impact, our Christian Boys and Girls Clubs. It's for infants up to 5th grade. Hi, Ricky and Rachel here, and we lead the Marriage Life Group once a month on Sunday at 6 p.m. It is a great place for you to come and fellowship with other married couples to help strengthen marriages. Don't forget we have child care, so come check us out on Facebook. Hope to see you soon. Hi, I'm Ishmael Lopez, uh, elder and worship leader at Metro Praise, and I want to invite you to our worship life group. We meet the, the last Saturday of the month from 12 to 2. If you're an elder, deacon, or 201, you're invited to come. We do our worship practice there and some musical training, so come on by. Give it up for the life group leaders. Come on. So if you turn your handouts in the back, that is our life group schedule for this quarter. April, May, and June, find a place to belong. There is so much going on in, in church and fellowship and building relationships. You want to get plugged in and share life with people. This is our snapshot of the week of what we have going on for life groups just this week. So this Tuesday, the Resistance Elevate Life Group, 11 to 18 years old, is meeting here at the church at 6 p.m. Wednesday, our King's Kids Life Group, infant to 11 years old, 6.30 here at the church. Friday, uh, we have two adult Bible studies. One at the Govea's, one at the Walker's house. Both are for 18 years and up, 7 p.m. Both have child care included, are available. And then Saturday, our evangelism team, all ages at the church, 5 p.m. That meets every week. So find a place to belong. Because then after you get connected, we want to mentor you. Somebody say mentor. We have leaders ready to take you through the 101 book, Welcome to Your New Life where we teach you how to have a relationship with God and grow in your walk with him. And when you graduate the 101, you'll get into the 201 class, Disciples That Make Disciples, where we train you to be a leader. And then we want to send you out to go win the city for Jesus. And our goal here is to have 50 churches in Chicago with 100,000 disciples and then 500 churches around the world. If you believe we can do that, say amen. And it is not by our strength, it's by God's strength that we believe that he has given us a vision to reach the Chicagoland area, to reach the city, and to reach the world for him because the nations belong to Jesus. Come on. If you're excited to give tithes and offerings this morning, say amen. Let's get ready to get into our lesson. We are closing out section one of the Disciples Giving Book. We are on lesson 14. There are three sections to the book, so we're a basically a quarter through the new year. Come on, everybody. Lesson 14, we're going to be reading in Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 through 22. You could also look up in the screen. Lesson 14, the tithe is a partnership with God. When we put God first in our, in our finances, we are partnering with him to advance his kingdom. The definition of a tithe is 10% of your total income given to God faithfully. Let's read in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Here are the two main points from that passage of scripture. Number one, Jacob made a commitment to God. Just like how God made a vow, a promise to serve God, we should commit our lives to follow Jesus. 
I did that November 3rd, 2000, almost 15 years ago. I made a commitment to follow Jesus and to never look back. And that's what he wants from each and every one of us is to fully surrender and give our lives to him. And everything that we have, everything that he blesses us with, he wants us to give back to him, to give him honor. Number two, Jacob partnered with God through tithing. In the same way, Jacob was willing to give one-tenth of everything he had in life because he recognized it was from God. We should also be willing to tithe and partner with God. So from that time that I got saved in 2000, I started tithing. I started giving to missions. My church taught me what it was uh, about to give faithfully, to tithe, and giving faithfully in our offering. And so we want to challenge everybody. We want to keep teaching you. Put God first in all that you do because he blesses us when we put him first, when we follow his commands. And it's not just about the money. He wants us to follow all of his commands to live for him. Here's a summary. Make a commitment to serve God all the days of your life and partner with him by giving back 10% of everything he gives you. Here's how we could apply it to our life. Number one, realize that everything you have and will ever have is because of God. Two, therefore, honor your partnership with God by tithing and not being greedy, stingy, or prideful because naked you came into this world and naked you will leave. Only what you do for God will last for eternity. That is not a lie, my friends. That is in the Bible. Number three, partnership. When God blesses you, bless him in return. Let's confess this over our life in the count of three. One, two, three. The tithe was implied with Cain and Abel, revealed to Abraham, established in the law of Moses, and is still relevant for today. It comes with a blessing and curse. It must be qualitative, a priority, and a faithful practice in our lives. Advances the kingdom of God, tests our maturity, breaks the attitude of greed through obedience, is mandated for all, and brings us into partnership with God and his church. Stand up to your feet with me this morning as we prepare to give the Lord our best, our 10%. Again, here at MPI, we believe that the tithe is 10% of your total income, and we give that regularly to the church so that we could partner with God to advance his kingdom on this earth. And then we also designate our offerings into two places, one to the missions so that we could fund various mission projects that we are a part of throughout the year, and then our building fund, which we are currently in, raising monies for a 15-passenger van. And give it up for yourselves. As we announce how much we raise in the month of March, $1,414. So for a total of $4,647, we are more than halfway there. Come on, MPI. That is your generosity. We are so close. And that is what it looks like when the people of God partner together to see his kingdom come to earth. So we could continue giving rides to those that can't get to church. We could continue doing outreaches, going out to Ohio Park, bringing them here, doing outreaches, doing missions trips for our Bible college students and our youth group and going to camps. So you are making that possible. Something to be excited about. I want to remind you, if you want to make a purchase of a book, a Bible, you can do so freely either online or pay with your debit card in the back to with Pastor Griselda or myself. If you want to purchase a Bible, a 101 book, uh, t-shirts are coming out too. We have a sneak preview for you. It's very easy to do so now. If you wanted to do it here while you're at church, you can put in your order now, pre-order. So we have Chicago for Jesus t-shirts for men and girl tees, pink. Come on, ladies, this is about some pink shirts. Woo, I know I am. So 
Chicago for Jesus and Metro Praise International shirts. If you want to pre-order, you can do that today with your credit card in the back. We are so excited about what God is doing. And let's, say, let's get some guys get some pink. But you know what? They don't come in the guys' t-shirts. That'll be a little weird. But this guy's rocking it out. Come on, let's give it up for Jonathan rocking the pink. I like that. I wanted Lucas to wear pink, but he wore purple, so it's okay. Let's recite this together. Luke 6, 38. Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. For with a measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your generosity and your faithfulness in our lives. We give you our best this morning. We give you the tithe and the offering because we partner with you, O oh God, to see your kingdom come to this city, to this nation, and to all the nations of the world. So I pray that you bless the gift and the giver. Bring increase and prosperity to your people. Bless them on their jobs. God, may they get the raises. May they get the promotions, Lord. May they meet the needs of their family as they put you first, oh God, and I pray that you meet the needs of this church so we can continue to win the loss. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please come forward as you give this morning, and we thank you so much for your generosity. Waking up knowing there's a reason All my dreams come alive Life is for of songs they have ready for you. So as they start to get ready and set up, we would like to share with you some of the verses we have been working on the past few weeks. So first we have Bethany and Hannah who will be doing John 11:25. Are you guys ready? All right. Good job. Very nice. And then we have Josie who will do Matthew 28, 5 through 6. Matthew 28, <coughs> Matthew 28, 5 through 6. The angel told the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus 
who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Very nice. All right, so we are ready. Okay, good job, everyone. The kids have been working so hard. We're very proud of them. And we would like to start off with, do you know the Son of God? If it was, am I living it? Do I live in it? You lift me up, fill my eyes with wonder. Come on, if you believe Jesus is alive, can I hear a hallelujah? Let me get a woo-woo. 
Amen. This is the Super Bowl of churches. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm so glad you're here today. Man, this is so awesome. We have gone to two services. This is the first day y'all showed up and God is blowing up. Amen? This is the day that churches all across the world celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To us, it's not religion. To us, it's a relationship with Jesus and knowing him and showing him to the world. Everybody say, I know him. And somebody say, I'm showing him. Amen. We are starting a new series this entire month, starting with today, Resurrection Sunday. It is called, Who is Jesus? We want you to know all about Jesus. He's the star of the show. He's the main actor in the play. He's the rock star. He's the NBA superstar. He's the one who hits the most home runs and grand slams. Are you with me? He's the best. There's nobody better than him. There's not even a second place. Nobody else could even join the competition. Are you listening? So this whole entire month, we're going to be learning about Jesus. We want you to know him and to show him to the world. So today, we want to think about Resurrection Sunday and ask this question. Is he a savior raised from the dead or just a buried man? That's the question we're going to ask today. Next week and the weeks following, we're going to ask other questions. And you can always follow along with my notes online on Facebook or the website. All the sermons get recorded and added there. And so I want you to share it with your friends. Maybe they couldn't make it today. You could even text them right now and say, come to the 1 o'clock service because it was on fire. Okay? But I want you to answer this question today. Not just because you know the right answer, because I know the right answer. Jesus is alive. That's why we're here. But I want you to answer the question today thinking about maybe the doubts and skepticism that your friends might have. Because as we're celebrating today, there are those who are not. They're at the park. They're just enjoying maybe the weekend off. They're doing things with their family, and Jesus is not a reality to them. So I'm hoping that during this series that you will know more about God so you can show more about him. Is everybody getting the knowing and showing thing? Okay, open up your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew Chapter 16, verses 15 and onward. This is going to be our series scripture for the whole entire month. Who is Jesus? And so we're going to start here today as we answer this question. Is he a savior raised from the dead or is he a buried man? Now when you look at the book of Matthew, it's written by the disciple Matthew or what we call the apostle. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was very close with Jesus. His former occupation was a tax collector. And in that time, in the time of the Jewish people, it was a shady job. These guys would always skim money off the top to get more from themselves. And by doing so, they oppressed their people because the money that they were taking was from their very own people. So the Roman government made Jewish people collect the money from the Jewish people. And Matthew was a Jewish tax collector, and he was known for being dishonest. And what's so powerful about Matthew as he writes the story, the autobiography, uh, the biography, rather, of Jesus, is that it talks about his conversion and how he came to know Jesus, and that Jesus came to his house, and that when Jesus was there, he repented of his sins. And like the other tax collector, Zacchaeus, he probably had a transformation of giving back the money he stole stole because this was the kind of effect that Jesus had on people's lives. So he was a thief no more. He became a radical follower of Jesus. And he records here in this uh, portion of his uh, biography about Jesus a interaction that Jesus had with his disciples. Now how many disciples did Jesus have? 
12, right? So Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, and he's asking them, who do people say that I am? What, what do others say about me? Have you ever wondered what people think about you? Do you ever check people's Facebook to see if they're talking about you? Do you ever look at people's phones and see if they're texting about you? Or do you just ask them, what do you think? Or is that just me? Maybe I'm a little paranoid. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastor. But anyways, I don't know about you, but we all at times think about what others think about us. And Jesus was no different. But of course, his wasn't from an insecurity. He didn't want to see if people on Facebook thought he looked fat in those jeans or whether or not his hairdo was right that day. Jesus was asking them, what do uh, they say about me? Because he wanted to know how the message was being received. Was his teaching being actualized into their lives? Because, you know, you can hear something, but that doesn't mean you believe something. So he wanted to know, are they hearing me and are they believing me? And the answers that the people were saying were quite crazy. Everybody say cray cray. Uh, somebody said, and we don't know who it is, but the disciples said, there's somebody out there, Jesus, who thinks you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Or they think you're Elisha, uh, reincarnated. So there was somebody believing in reincarnation in the crowd and said, uh, I think that's who Jesus is. Everybody say, uh, wrong answer. That wasn't the right answer. Jesus was not a reincarnation of an older prophet that had been around. And then this is where we get to the passage. Verse 15, Jesus now wants to ask those 12 disciples, who do you say uh, I am? What about you guys? See, look at this passage. He asked them, he said, what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And that's a question I want to ask everybody here today. Not what your neighbors think, not what the Discovery Channel thinks, because you know every time uh, you know, Jesus, something's coming around with Christmas or Easter History Channel, has to put out their ideas, and the Da Vinci Code wrote a, 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 you know, had a movie based on a book about Jesus possibly lived afterwards. He wasn't really crucified. He had babies and all of these things. And, you know, there's a lot of crazy ideas about who Jesus was. Just like there was back then in that time, there is today. But I love this about Jesus. He asked them, he said, but who do you say that I am? Now look at Simon Peter. How many think Simon Peter's a good guy? Look what Simon Peter said. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So I want to ask you today, friends, who have come to church today, who do you say Jesus is? What is your answer? Who do you know him to be in your life? Who is Jesus to you? Because if you can answer that question correctly, it will change everything in your life. I want you to think about this as I get prepared to preach this message. C.S. Lewis said this quote, and I think it's so powerful that it bears repeating. C.S. Lewis was a famous author in the early 1900s and wrote uh, the storylines for the book, the line which, uh, for the movies that became The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And his best friend was J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Anybody ever seen any of those movies? Look at what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, if Christianity is false, it is of no importance. If it is true, it is of infinite importance. The one and only thing it cannot be is moderately important. You see, you can't have a gray answer or just a wishy-washy answer about this. If Jesus is not who he said he was or who the disciples claimed he was, then he was a liar and liars should not be paid attention to. 
We should not be celebrating someone who claimed to raise from the dead and did not. If he was just the Houdini of his time and tricked us all, we are fools and he's a bad person. He can't be just a good person and tell us lies. Does everybody agree with that? But yet, if he did raise from the dead as he claimed that he would and did and his disciples testified that they saw him, then this is of infinite importance, meaning there is not a subject that's more important. There is nothing else that could be more important than God coming to earth and raising from the dead to die for our sins. Can you think of anything more important? Politics, your job, the economy, education, hospitals, nothing could possibly be more important than Jesus coming to this world, being who he said he was and demonstrating it. And so today, friends, I want to propose to you today that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said he would do, and that if you know him, he will change your life today, that he just won't even be somebody that we talk about, but he'll be somebody that you know. I just don't want to talk about Jesus like he's not in the room. I want to talk right to him, amen? I just don't want to have a religion with this God that came to die for my sins. I want to have a relationship. Is anybody else with me? Now, in the notes, I put the whole timeline, as I scroll through it here, you can check it out, of Jesus' arrest and burial, uh, crucifixion and burial and resurrection. There's quite a bit of notes there. But I just want you to look at this pretty picture as I summarize those notes. How many like that pretty picture right there? That's what you're going to look at. But if you want to look deeper, I put the notes out there for you so you could share it with your friends. Thursday night, Jesus gathers all of his disciples together. And he says, this is why I came to this earth, to die, to be the lamb. There, while he's at that, day, that table, he gives them this bread and wine as we took in communion. And he says, this bread represents my body. This wine represents my blood that I'm pouring out for you. People don't believe him. But he says, no, this will indeed happen. Then one of his disciples, Judas, leaves to betray him. He then goes to a place to pray. How many think prayer is important? If Jesus prayed through hardships, how much more do you think you and I should pray through hardships? That kind of teaches us something. If Jesus prayed through hardships, I should pray through hardships. Not complain, not compare, not criticize. I should bring my hardships to the Father as Jesus did. Jesus then goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He asks his disciples to pray there with him, but what do they do? They knock out and fall asleep. He says, come on, guys, pray with me. I need you in my hour of need. They fall asleep again. Guess what happens? He begins to pray so intensely that his sweat turns to drops of blood, and God sends an angel to comfort him. Praise God that he was not alone in that time. Then his betrayer comes, Judas, with the army that the Jewish people had hired to arrest him. He's betrayed with a kiss, but what's interesting is that at that time of betrayal and the kiss, Jesus calls Judas friend. Do you know that even today, those who betray Jesus, Jesus still calls friend. If you're here today and you've turned your back on God or done things that displeased him, today he's still reaching out to you, calling you friend. The religious leaders arrest him. They then bring him to trial through the middle of the night. They begin to tell lies about him. They begin to say that he would destroy their temple, which wasn't true. They began to say that he was going to overturn all the teachings of Moses, which wasn't true. And then they begin to beat him because he will not give them the answers they're looking for. He remains silent as a sheep led to slaughter. Frustrated with his answers, they then bring him in the early morning hours of Friday morning to the Roman government. 
They begin to try him. They begin to mock him and abuse him. To the Roman soldiers, he's nothing more than a minority peasant that doesn't have any rights in their country. They spit on him. They blindfold him. They punch him. And they say, who hits you if you're truly a prophet? Then around the mid-afternoon of Friday, he's brought before the crowd with a criminal. And Pilate then says, who do you want me to crucify and who do you want me to let go? They shout, let go Barabbas, crucify Jesus. How often have we joined with the crowd and taken Jesus' name in vain? How much have we joined with the crowd and sinned and broke God's commands? Let us not just look at this story and say, shame on them. How often has the shame been on us when we've chosen our own sin over Jesus and we said, give me Nicki Minaj over Jesus. Give me the Cubs over Jesus. And yet he willingly goes. Then the torture becomes intense because now he is sentenced to death. And if there was one good thing that Romans did at that time, it was torture and murder and maim. That is what they were known for. They put him on a whipping post. They whip him 39 times with what is known as the cat of nine tails. I have it in my office, and I've demonstrated it at other Easter services. It is a big wooden stick with nine different leather whips attached to it with broken pieces of metal and glass attached to it. Each time they whipped him once, there was nine gouges into his flesh, pulling out his very flesh, exposing his muscle and bones. They did that to him 39 times. They mocked him by making a crown of thorns. They pushed it into his brow until he sweat. They pulled out his beard until his flesh from his cheeks hung raw. They stripped him naked and then they put upon him a hundred pound beam like a railroad tie and drug him up a hill to die as a criminal. We then see that at this time Jesus makes seven last sayings. Everybody say seven last sayings. As they put him on the cross, you know the story, the nail through his hands and two, one through both of his feet. He then is propped up between two other criminals that day. And the first thing that we see Jesus say after he's been beaten, abused, betrayed, is the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Isn't that the greatest sign of love you have ever heard of in your life? God becomes a man like his creation, the very thing he made. He allows them to beat and mistreat him so he might save them. And in the midst of them doing that, he doesn't get bitter. He forgives them. Then they mock him, put a sign above his head, king of the Jews. Passerbyers look at him, and they say, you are going to destroy the temple and do it and rebuild it yourself. Come down from the cross if you're really the son of God. Other religious leaders walk by him and mock him and say, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down now and save himself. And even the soldiers who had tortured him and are now gambling for his clothes as they put him up there naked are, are saying, if you really were the king of the Jews, than just save yourself. And if it wasn't the worst thing possible, one of the other criminals who deserved to die a death penalty shouted out to him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. 
And yet we get to the second saying of Jesus while he's on that cross because the other criminal hushes the one who's just mocked him and says, don't you know that we deserve to be here? This man has done no evil. And then he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus looked at him and said this important thing, the second thing he said from the cross, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't it awesome that even while Christ is suffering, he is still saved? He's always been a suffering Savior. He has always been there in the midst of our problems and trials, not to condemn us, but to save us. He doesn't look to that criminal and say, yes, you deserve hell and you'll rot there forever. No, he says to that repentant, brokenhearted man, you will be with me in paradise. And is that not what he says to all the sinners here? who have come willingly to him and admitted their guilt and their shame? Has he not reached out to you and I with mercy, as he did for me with drugs in my pocket as a high school dropout at the age of 18? He truly promised me that same thing, that I would be with him in paradise. While he's hanging on the cross, it's getting to the mid-afternoon hours. It is contemporary, for, uh, it was at this time in contemporary culture for the men when they die to place their women, their wives, or their, uh, not their women, but their, the, the loved ones they have, including their women, into the care of other people. Mary is standing there at the foot of the cross with John, the beloved disciple, and Jesus will take care of his responsibilities. This is his last will and testimony, and he says this third saying on the cross. He says, woman, here is your son, here is your mother. He wants his mother, Mary, to be taken care of. He wants her to know that she will not be left alone and unprovided for, that she will not be shamed in the city, but rather she'll be taken care of by one of his favorite disciples. Isn't that beautiful? He is taking care of others while he is there dying for them. How often has Jesus come to us in the middle of our trials and has said to us, here is a church, and church, here is a member. Here is someone who cares about you. Join yourself to them. The church is called the bride of Christ, and oftentimes the church is our mother caring for us when no one else will. As we get towards the final hours of Jesus on the cross, the sky turns pitch black. Everyone begins to wonder what is going on. Could it be storm clouds? But yet it's beyond what a storm would do. It blocks out the very sun, blocks out any light. And then Jesus says this fourth saying in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During this time, we believe as theologians that what happened to Jesus was not just the physical suffering, though that would be torment alone, but now the Father places sin upon his soul. For this was the very reason why it had to be Jesus to come to this earth. It could not be an angel. It could not be a man. Only God himself in the form of man could take all the sin of mankind. At this moment, the sky turns pitch black and the father turns his back on his son. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin for us. He literally became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There at that point of being forsaken by his father because now he's the sacrificial lamb. He is the scapegoat like the priest would place his hand over the head of the lamb and pronounce all of the sins of Israel upon and send him into the wilderness to die. Here Jesus experienced all the sin of homosexuality, all the sin of abuse, all the sin of murder, all the sin of adultery, all the sin of lying and stealing, all the sins of covetousness and bitterness and greed and envy and the 
Holocaust and the African slave trade. Here Jesus took it upon himself. Not that he was sinning, but that he took upon sin. As he now is there dying in his last breath hanging from the cross, he says his fifth saying, I am thirsty. At this point, they give him something to drink, which I believe is for the very fact that he can say his last two sentences, which is, it is finished. And then the last thing he says as he breathes his last breath is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, we have to ask ourselves something, my friends, as you hear the story of the cross. Is this a true story? Is what I just told to you true and accurate, or should it be regulated to myth and to the same bookshelf of fiction where Cat in the Hat is by Dr. Seuss? Because if this truly happened, if the Son of God came, was laid upon that cross for us, said these things, and did these things, then it is of utmost importance. Can I hear an amen? They then take down his body. They bring him to a burial tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. He was part of the Jewish ruling council. They then set him there. They then, the Jewish people, asked for a tomb to be rolled, uh, rather a stone to be rolled over the tomb, the tomb to be sealed, and for Roman guards to guard it so that the disciples can't come to steal it and say that Jesus has raised from the dead. Why? They, they, they go through this because they knew Jesus had made promises that he would raise from the dead. Early Sunday morning, the women go to prepare his body further so that he can be truly uh, buried in honor and they see that the stone has been rolled away. They see that Jesus is not there. His clothes lay there empty, and all of a sudden one of them gets a visitation for Jesus, and she thinks it's a gardener, yet it's Jesus speaking to him. Then Jesus, for the next few days, begins to appear to his disciples and say that he's risen from the dead. One of these interesting appearances comes from when he goes to see Doubting Thomas, one of his disciples that said, I've heard the women say they've seen you. I've heard some of the other disciples disciples say they've seen you, but I won't believe until I touch you myself. You ever heard about the name Doubting Thomas? That's where it comes from. He's one of the 12 disciples. Jesus walks through the wall, shows up in the room, places out his nail-scarred hands, and says, touch me, Thomas, and doubt no more. Thomas touches him, falls to his knees, and proclaims what we all should proclaim on our knees, my Lord and my God. He made a believer out of Thomas. Then he goes to find Peter. See, the only difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter did not quit. Judas hung himself and gave up, but Peter did not quit, even though he betrayed Jesus in a similar way by saying he did not know him. P Jesus comes and finds Peter and reinstates him into the ministry and asks him three different times, one for each of the times that Peter betrayed him. He asked him three different times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Because what he was saying to Peter is every time you betrayed me, my love for you was greater. Every time you sinned against me, my love for you was greater. Every time you did what was wrong, my love was greater. Love conquers all, even sin. Peter's restored. The disciples are excited. Now they're thinking this Jesus is going to now rule and reign as a king. He can't be killed. That's already been done. He is now going to destroy the entire Roman government and set up the nation of Israel to rule the world. Yet Jesus shocks them and begins to tell them, I now must go. And you even see in the book of Acts that they still don't get it. 
until he literally starts ascending into a cloud. As he's ascending into the cloud, they watch him disappear, and they're wondering what's going on. The angels then have to tell them he has gone, and he will come back in like fashion. And that is what we are waiting for today, 2,000 years later, for Jesus Christ to come back. Those disciples then go into an upper room and pray because he said, pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to come so that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the earth. Then at Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, the day he was crucified, the Holy Spirit came into that upper room, filled 110 of those disciples, and 120, and sent them out to preach. And that is the gospel that is being preached to you today, saying that Jesus is Lord. He has come. He has died and he has risen and he will come again. And if you call upon his name, you will be saved. Amen. Do you believe that? For God so loved the world. Hallelujah, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That, my friends, is the story of the cross. That is the gospel, which simply means good news. Do you believe it today? Share it with everyone you know. We are now left with these two questions very similar to what I had asked before, and here they are. Number one, did Jesus do what I just said that he did? Did he actually die on that cross? Was he buried? Did he raise again? Did he spend 40 days confirming it to his disciples? Did he then ascend to heaven? Did he pour out the Holy Spirit and is he coming again? You have to ask that. Your friends are asking it. It's an important question. And then number two, we have to ask ourselves, now, if it did happen, and that's actually a matter of fact, did the disciples, like Matthew, who we read today from his biography of Jesus, did the disciples accurately pass down the events found in the Bible? Can the Bible, is the Bible that you hold in your hand today true to what actually happened? Now, I've provided some further evidence for you so that you can answer these questions because the more you know, the more you can. Oh, you all forgot the saying already? You got to know him so you can show him. So the more you know him is the more you can show him. I've got some resources there for you. But can I give you my four best evidences for Jesus' resurrection? Can I do that today? On Resurrection Sunday, can I give you those four best evidences? They're all in the notes. Here they are as they're scrolling by. Remember, this is my job to preach it now in the next 10 minutes, okay? It's just your job to listen real good and look at that pretty picture. How many like that picture right there? Somebody say, he has risen. Fact one, it is undeniable that this Jesus, the one who walked the earth, was a historical person and that he was indeed crucified and dead and then buried in a tomb. Some people have tried to say, well, maybe he wasn't dead, and they just took him off the cross, and then when they put him in the tomb, he kind of woke up because back then they didn't know if someone was knocked out or passed out or dead. Let me tell you something. When the Romans got done with you, you were dead as a dog. 
And to make sure that you were dead, they always gave to the people crucified a death blow to check to make sure that there was not a passing out situation happening. To the two criminals who were still alive and breathing, they broke their knees and their legs so that they would just hang and have no way to lift themselves to breathe because that's how you breathe on the cross is by putting pressure on the very place of the pain and pulling yourself from your arms and your leg. But when you break your legs, you can't pull yourself up anymore. You suffocate and drown in your own blood. But yet when they came to Jesus to break his legs, he was already in the, the dead position. But to make sure, the Ro- one of the Roman soldiers took his spear and speared it directly through Jesus, piercing through his vital organs and his heart. And it says he bled out water and blood. He was indeed dead. Everybody say he was dead. And so the first fact that I want to tell you is he was dead and he was buried in a tomb. You know what's so unique about this is that oftentimes we hear the story, we hear the story, we forget that there are very significant facts about this story. Do you know that the person's tomb in which he is buried in is part of, he was part of the same group that crucified him. Joseph of Arimathea was on the Jewish ruling council. If you were going to make up a story of where they placed your fictional character or the character you're going to try to say raised from the dead, why would you pick a tomb that all the people who hate him would know exactly where it's at? Wouldn't the better lie be to say, oh, they buried him somewhere off in the desert somewhere, and that's why you can't find the body? No, the disciples said he was buried at this man's uh, grave where everybody knows him in the Jewish ruling council. Go there and see if the tomb has his body. Isn't that awesome? The Bible provided you with the fact to trust that that tomb was indeed empty. How do we know that that can be trusted? Because we see that the Jewish people put soldiers there. They then knew where it was at, and they put a tomb with cement and sealed it, or rather a rock, and sealed the tomb. And do you know that the very story that they told after the resurrection is the very story that was taught in history to those who doubted the resurrection, which was the disciples stole the body. But to get the Roman soldiers to tell that story, they had to pay them off. But for a Roman soldier to be paid off to fall asleep on his, uh, on his uh, watch, because that's what he would have to say, is, oh, I fell asleep, they came and chiseled away and opened it up, they would be creating a whole other set of problems. That's why New Testament scholar Raymond Brown says it is almost very probable and almost inexplicable that the Christians would not have made him up as where his body was uh, laid, that Joseph of Arimathea wasn't a made-up person, but it was real, and the story does not answer to why the body was not there. Everybody say an empty tomb. Also, one another of the scholars says one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus is where he was buried. So what do you believe? Was Jesus dead when he took him off the cross? Was Jesus buried in a tomb that they say is as historically accurate as any other fact we can know in history? Well, then now what will you believe? Will you believe a lie that they stole his body? Why would Jewish disciples steal his body and somehow convince Roman soldiers that, that, or, or somehow let Roman soldiers fall asleep, come and steal his body, and then go around saying this is our Savior and Lord? Wouldn't that get, just get them all killed like Jesus? Wouldn't that make the Roman soldiers get in trouble with their officers? Why would this lie benefit anybody? Why not just say my prophet died? John the Baptist died. They didn't say he raised from the dead. Elijah died. He didn't raise from the dead. It would have benefited them nothing. Let's ever go to fact two. Everybody say fact two. 
The second thing that we see is that the women's discovery of his empty tomb. Remember, I just went through it. I said the women were coming, and then they meet him. And we think of that, oh, that's not that big of a deal. But in the culture that they were writing in, women did not even have the ability to be witnesses in the court of law. So once again, if you're a Christian telling a story about a resurrected Savior, why would you pick a tomb that everybody would know to go check? And then number two, why would you say that your number one supporting witnesses are women? But somebody say, Jesus loves women. Isn't that special? See, Jesus didn't care about their tradition of that time of not accepting women. And, that, and as a matter of fact, him using the women proves to us that it probably and most assuredly was the women that found him because it's called an embarrassing fact. Imagine you're some dude 20 years later after the resurrection, you're talking to your fellow fishing buddy about a man raised from the dead, and the first thing you appeal to is, well, these women saw it. Could you imagine what that fisherman would say back to his buddy? I can't trust a woman. Now, women, be patient with me. I'm telling you, this is what that culture. Why would that fishing guy want to tell a story that would, would say, somebody would say back to him, this woman could not even be in a court of law. Why should I trust her? It would be embarrassing. Yet we see from people who specialize in history that by far we can firmly establish that these women were indeed the trustworthy witnesses. Because why would anyone make it up? Why would the church hold up their testimony as being the very thing that they believed? Number three, everybody say number three. The thing that we see next is that Jesus appears to people. See, this is where it gets strange, especially if you're a Muslim, because Muslims want to say Jesus didn't die on the cross, and they have two real excuses or things they try to say to get around it. The first one is they say Jesus didn't die. He just looked like he died, and then he swooned or came to life in the, the tomb. The other thing that they say is they caught the wrong man, and Jesus allowed another man to die in his place. One is called the swoon theory. He came to life in the tomb. The other one is called the substitution theory. Are you with me? Both of them make Jesus out to be a coward. Both of them make Jesus out to be a liar. Let's look at the first one. If Jesus was really beaten and whipped 39 times, beard pulled out, cheekbone, uh, cheek flesh hanging out, exposed bone, and now he just comes to life and people then look at him and say, you're our resurrected Lord and Savior? Isn't that ridiculous? Doesn't that make him even worse of a liar? Would you believe somebody was resurrected from the dead if they came out with still the knife womb on them, if they were still bleeding, if they were still emaciated, if they were still a mess? How would that display the kingdom of God? All that would display is that you just took a licking and now you still ticking. Why would doubting people fall on their knees and say, my Lord and my God? The other one, of course, that makes Jesus look like a coward is that he, he allowed someone to die in his place. Here you go, Peter. You take my place. I'm going to duck over here. Does that make Jesus look good? Does that confirm with his teachings that he would do something like that? Here, you die and I live. You serve me and I'll be served. Does that seem like the personality of Jesus? It's not Jesus' whole entire mission. I serve you. I lay down my life for you. So now what are we left with? Everybody will listen to this. What are we left with? We're left with a man who was beaten and crucified, put dead in a tomb, now appearing to people without any wounds, only but a marking in his hands and his feet. Think about that. That would convince me. 
If three days ago I saw crowns placed onto your head, pushed into your face, if I saw your beard hanging out, if I saw you whipped 39 times, if I saw you speared through your side, if I watched you be dragged down and put into a tomb and covered up and laid there, and now I see you and there's no marks on your body, your beard is whole, your brow is whole, you're in good spirits, and then you walk through a wall... And you show me the marking on your hands, that's enough for me to do what Thomas did. And not only that, but you begin to hear stories about Jesus appearing to people that would otherwise never believed in Jesus. Paul, who was part of the Jewish people at that time, who were persecuting Christians, says one day when I was riding my horse, he gets knocked off and he said, I saw a bright light and I looked and it was Jesus himself had appeared to me. So this very man who hated Christians now sees an appearance of Jesus and his entire life changes and he becomes Paul the apostle. Everybody say he appeared to his disciples and say, lastly, he appeared to Paul. Thank you. Then when you get to this last fact here, the disciples' belief in the resurrection. Do you know that at the time of the Roman Empire, to believe in a God was not a problem? Everybody believed in gods. Which God is yours? Oh, I worship the goddess Diana. Oh, I worship Hercules. Oh, I worship Caesar. I worship this. I worship that. This culture had a pantheon of gods. To say you believed in one wasn't a problem. But what was the problem with these Christians? If you look at the very first preaching messages, they're not just saying we believed in a good man. They're not just saying we believed in a prophet. And they're not just saying we believed in something we called a God. They specifically preached the man, and they went to Jerusalem, by the way, the place where they killed him. They went back there and said, the man you crucified is now alive, and we have seen him, and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And there is no name under heaven given to men whereby you might be saved. Repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Why in the world would Christians make up such a story and then put themselves back in the very place where they had killed their Savior, claiming they had seen him resurrected? Unless they did. Peter was a coward the day that Jesus died. Most of the disciples were nowhere to be found. What would give them this courage now to be martyrs for making up a story? They would benefit nothing. And yet these men begin to die, not because they believe in a God, but they claim to have seen God walk among them, be raised from the dead. And it's for that story that they begin to die. It's that story that they begin to preach that the Romans began to despise so much that they would take the Christians and they would put them with their families in an amphitheater the size of our stadiums and they would set them on fire to cheering crowds. They would have children with their parents be devoured by wild animals with the cheering of crowds. Like you saw with the ISIS video, the Muslims beheading the Christians. They would be beheaded in public to the cheering of crowds. And it wasn't based on the fact that they believed in a God. It wasn't based on the fact that they thought Jesus was a good man. There were Aristotle followers. There were so many Epicurean followers of philosophy. It wasn't that. The problem that made everybody so mad is that they said they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And then as that story passed down, it was Peter saw Jesus raised from the dead, and I believe Peter.
And they began to pass on that testimony till you see now 2,000 years later that Jesus is the most popular name in the world, the Bible, the most read book, and we are growing across the world in places where they are still trying to kill us. It is these four facts, my friends, that you can know about Jesus so you can show Jesus to your friends that he, in fact, was dead and buried. The women discovered his empty tomb. He was seen by many of his followers, and they believed this even unto their death. Can I hear an amen? Vinny, can you come to the keys in closing, please? This may not be the typical Easter service you are used to, but I believe if you know Jesus, you can show Jesus because he is not just a dead man buried in a grave somewhere. He is indeed the Savior of the world raised from the dead. So what do you do now? What do you do today? Do you just cheer on Jesus and say, yay, I believe all that. That's cool, Pastor. Let's go back home and eat our dinner now. No, because as I read at the beginning, if this is true, then it's of infinite importance. And it shouldn't be just life as normal. I'm sorry if you've seen Christians come to uh, uh, services on Christmas and Easter and be no different. All you've met is a creaster. You haven't met a true disciple. I'm sorry if you've had friends and family claim to be Christians and be hypocrites. But that's not who wrote this Bible. That's not who's found in here. Those aren't those people. I'm sorry if you have, quote, unquote, tried church and you have been let down. People will always let you down, even if they're in a building called church. But I want to ask you, if you're here today and you haven't committed your life to this, to go to Jesus. Not religion, not just church officials with collars or even casually dressed pastors, but to go to Jesus. And do what Thomas did and remove your doubts. Number two, put your faith in him. And what is faith in the Bible? Is faith just saying, oh, yeah, I believe that, no big deal. No, faith is an active thing. If you really believe in Jesus, you'll give Jesus things that you hold most valuable. When I believed that my wife loved me, I gave my wife the deepest secrets of my heart because I knew she wouldn't put it on Facebook. I knew she wouldn't embarrass me. I trusted her. Do you trust God like that? Do you give him your hurts? Do you give him your pains? Do you invite him into the parts of your life that nobody knows about? And do you say, Jesus, have all of me? Number three, you repent of your sins and you allow God to do something supernaturally in you that the Bible calls being born again. And most of us here know about it, but those who don't, you need to allow God to do that. Repenting means I'm sorry, God, for what I have done. I have failed you. I have sinned. But being born again is something only God can do. When you were born the first time on your birthday, did you have anything to do with that? Did you make yourself pregnant in your mother's womb? Did you get your mama pregnant? You didn't do that, did you? Did you push and help your mama on the way out? Here I come, mama, I'm helping. You push, I pull. Is that how it was? Nothing of your own effort brought you in here the first time. Nothing of your own effort brings you in the second time. It's all Jesus. It's all grace. It's all the cross. 
It's all him. It's all him. It's always been him. It's always been about him. And even if you've been a part of churches and you haven't heard that, get born again again. Get real with God. Stop making it about what you're doing. Jesus didn't come to make us better people, though that's good. Jesus didn't come to just remodel our lives, though it's good to stop doing bad things. Jesus died so that dead people might live. He came that sinners might become saints. When the sky turned black at 3 in the afternoon, it was for your sin and mine, and then he rose again. It was so we could be born again. Hallelujah. Woo! I'm going to say it again. He rose again from the dead so we could be born again from the dead. Today, Jesus is saying, will you be mine? (laughs) Will you be my neighbor? I got a place in heaven for you. Will you let me in? Will you let me change you? Sometimes we ask ourselves, and we did a whole series on this last month, but it's good to bring up now. Sometimes we ask ourselves in the midst of our problems, how much does God love me? Because if he loved me, he really wouldn't let me go through all of this. But when we look to the cross, we see that God loves us this much. As wide as you can stretch your arms, he says, I love you this much. He welcomes all of us to be born again. And then what do we do? We live our lives as those new creations empowered by His Holy Spirit. We've gotten rid of those doubts. we put our trust in Him. We've repented. We've allowed Him to make us new. And then we follow Him. We follow Him like those disciples did. We forsake evil in our lives, not because we just have to. Do I have to? Do I really? Do I really have to come back to this church next week? Do I have to read my Bible? We don't go to church and read our Bible and pray and teach our children Bible stories because we have to. It's because we want to. He's the greatest of all the great ones. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the bright and morning star. He's the lily of the valley. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He is Jesus, my Lord and my God. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Hallelujah. Keep standing. Come on, we're excited. Everybody stand. Give Jesus one more hand clap. Come on. We love you, Jesus. Praise God. Band, would you come, please? We live our lives as new creation because He's worth it. The word worthy means worth it. You're worthy of your pay when you work hard because you're worth it. You're worthy of your title, doctor, teacher, professor, because you earned it. And Jesus is worth your life because he earned it. That's why the Father gave him a name above every other name. That's why Buddha doesn't have that name. That's why no one else has that name. And then lastly, as he left that day and the disciples looked into the clouds, 
we wait for him to come back. We put our hope in that Savior because 2,000 years has gone by and some of our friends think it's always been the same. It's always going to be the same. Jesus is not coming back. And yet, we are here to be faithful. And we're here to say, God, I'm waiting for you. I am preparing a place for you here. When Jesus comes and his kingdom comes, will it change how you live? Think about that. Or has his kingdom come already? Think about that just for a second. I know, like, if he comes, it's really going to be a big deal. But I'm just saying, like, Jesus said we're to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So it's like, if one day his kingdom's going to come and people are going to worship him, am I worshiping him now? If one day his kingdom's going to come and people are going to bow to him, am I bowing to him now? If one day his kingdom's going to come and people are obeying him, do I obey him now? Do you guys get that? That's what I'm trying to say. Altar workers, would you come? Let's close our eyes in prayer today. Thank you for hearing the message on the resurrection of Jesus. Let's just end with prayer right now. Father, we want to live for Jesus because he died for us. We want to surrender our lives to him because he is worth it. I ask you right now, Lord, to speak to all of our hearts and to call us home to you right now to be born again. With every head bowed and eyes closed, if you have not yet been born again, would you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins? Would you ask Jesus to come into your heart to make you whole, to make you new? If you're here today and you've already been born again and you love him, will you take the next 30 seconds to tell him why you love him? Just worship him, praise him. So whether today you're praying for Jesus to come into your life or whether you're living it out but now adoring him, either way, right now, let's just worship him. 30 seconds before we leave out of here. I can't make you do it, but I can show you the way. And those of you who love Jesus, isn't it wonderful to be in his presence? Isn't he worth it all? Isn't he beautiful? Hallelujah, Lord, I love you. I pray that no one leaves out of here the same way they came in. That everyone here becomes born again to know and to love you, to serve you. And that those of us who live for you, may your praise be continually on our lips. May your life be our motivation. And now for the next 30 seconds, I want you to think whether or not you've just asked Jesus into your life or you have just praised him for those few moments. But everybody now think for the next 30 seconds, how does this impact your life? How does this change your life? What's different tomorrow about you? What's different? What changes? Because this, if it is true, and I believe that it is, it is infinitely important. It should change everything about you. It should change how you raise your children. It should change the way you work on your job, how you treat your neighbor. All of us can see how this affects us and how it changes our lives. Hallelujah. 30 seconds. How does this change you right now? Come on. You heard a good message. You clapped your hands. You heard some worship songs. But how does it change you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Lord, help us 
to live like you. Help us to be like you. Help us to live for you. Changes everything, Lord. I can't lose my temper with my kids without repenting, saying I'm sorry. I can't get upset with my neighbor when they litter on my lawn like I used to. I got to forgive and be patient. I can't curse, be a drunkard. I can't have these controlling habits because you changed me. You're worth it. I can't, I can't be bitter towards those who have hurt me. I got to forgive because your love changes everything. You change everything about me, God. Everything about me. Come on, if you love Jesus, can I hear an amen? Everybody say, I know him, and I'm going to show him. Amen. Say, I know him, and I'm going to show him. Would you hold your neighbor's hand in closing today? Let's be a family. Who's bringing me some leftovers Monday? I'm going to be right here on Monday. Somebody bring me some leftovers. I'm going to be having some Bible college around here. Can you all bring me some? Can you bring me some? Bring me some leftovers. I'm not asking to come over for the first. I'm just saying, can I get the seconds, you know, tomorrow? Sitting in the refrigerator. Somebody's hearing me. 12 o'clock right here. Monday afternoon. Ain't nothing wrong with leftovers. I ain't too proud to bathe. Look at your neighbor and say, we family. Look at your other neighbor and say, that means you too, Bubba. (laughs) Oh, man. Can I just say this before we close out? We got altar workers.